I invite you to pull out your message notes. I have a message of all messages today. I, I honestly think as I put this together, this is probably the greatest message I have ever written. Now, I don't know if I can deliver it, but I know it's the greatest message I've ever written. And at least on paper, this is really, really good. And I believe that you're going to get something out of the message today that will absolutely change your life. I titled the message, The Odd Beginning to the Christmas Story. The Odd Beginning to the Christmas Story. And I'm going to show you a passage on the Christmas story that you're going to look at this passage and think, how in the world are you going to pull anything meaningful out of this passage? Like, you know, I have a lot of hope in you, Pastor. I don't know if I have that much hope in you. Like, I don't know if you can pull this one off today, but I'm going to show you something in this passage that is so powerful. It's one of the most powerful parts of the Christmas story that we often overlook, we often neglect, we often speed through because it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But if you were a Jewish person in the first century and you read this passage, immediately you would have been captivated. Immediately you would have been hooked into this story and you would have said to yourself, I've got to read the end of the book because I've got to know how this thing ends. And I'm going to show that to you today. So how many of you are ready to read the most exciting part of the Christmas story today? Here we go. Spiritual dynamite in here. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, God made a promise to David. God made a promise to Abraham. This is the fulfillment. God told Abraham, one of your descendants, I will bless the entire world through one of your descendants. He also said to David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. This is the fulfillment of that promise. And then it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, David, or Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Behud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azar, Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Isn't that exciting? That is the beginning of the Christmas story. And I know you're thinking to yourself, how in the world are you going to pull anything meaningful out of this message? I want to tell you right now that this is one of the most powerful passages in all of the New Testament when you understand what Matthew is doing. So let's dig into it today. I want you to notice, this is the beginning of the Christmas story. I want you to first notice 
As we look at the Christmas story, we begin this, this season of Christmas, how it does not begin. I want you to notice how it does not begin. The Christmas story does not begin a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It does not begin with the phrase, once upon a time. It begins with a genealogy. You see, what Matthew is doing is grounding what Jesus did into history. This actually happened. It is a history. It is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's something that actually occurred in history. And out of this passage, three of the most incredible thoughts to revitalize, revolutionize, energize your faith today. Here's point number one in your notes. Joy to the world. This is good news, not good advice. This is good news. What we are reading today is good news. It is not good advice. It is good news. It is a genealogy of something that actually happened. Now, what in the world does this mean to us today? Well, first off, advice. Think about advice. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something has already happened and respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says somebody else has acted already. There's a radical difference between news and advice. I want you to imagine being in an ancient city. And there is an invading army in the land. And they are destroying city to city to city. And you're next on the list. You literally have days before this invading army is coming into your city to destroy everything you love and hold dear. In that moment, what do you need? You need a military advisor. You need somebody to give you military advice. Where do you fortify? Where do you position the troops? How do you defend your city? How do you save yourself from this invading army? You need a military advisor. Now I want you to imagine if there was a good king in the land and the king found out about this invading army. And, and days before this army reaches your city, the king and his army shows up in the middle of nowhere and absolutely destroys and wipes out this invading army, saving your city. In that moment, what do you need? You don't need advice anymore. You need news. You need to hear the good report that the king has saved you. The king has defeated this invading army. You are saved. Stop trying to save yourself. The king has already saved you. You know, unfortunately, most people, when they look at Christianity, when, when, when they think about Christianity, they look at it as advice on how to live a better life. People look at Christianity as, as this is how I can become a better person. This is how I can have more peace. This is something that can improve my life, improve my marriage, improve my family. We look at Christianity as advice. The Christmas story is not a fable with a moral to the story. It's not about the characters being examples to us. 
I want you to understand first and foremost that Christmas is not telling you what you should do. Christmas is telling us what God has already done. It is not good advice. It's good news. Think of the word gospel. The word gospel is not a Christian word. The word gospel literally translates as good news. Let me give you a gospel report from the first century, from the time of Christ. Here's a gospel report that we read from the first century. Good news, justice, peace, security, prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become the King of the world. Do you know who that's talking about? It's not talking about Jesus. This was a gospel bulletin that the Roman Empire sent out to the world when Augustus Octavius became the emperor of Rome. It was a good news report. You now have a Caesar, an emperor, Augustus. In fact, the very first place we can find the word gospel goes all the way back to the Battle of Marathon. Do you ever see the movie 300? This is Sparta. Remember that movie? Then there was the follow-up movie, Rise of the Empire. That movie is the story of the Battle of Marathon. It's the very first place in history we can find the word gospel. You see, what was going on is the Persians were invading. And the Persian army was larger, stronger, way more powerful than the Greek army. And the Greeks had to defend themselves at Marathon. And against all odds, the Greek army won. They defeated the invaders. They defeated the Persians. They held them back, pushed them back to their land. Now, about 22 miles from Marathon, there was a city called Athens. And the people of Athens knew that if the Greek army lost at Marathon, they were first on the list. They would be destroyed. They would lose their wives, their children, their property, their homes. Everything would be destroyed. Can you imagine the fear that the Athenians were living in? Knowing that if the Greeks lose at Marathon, they're going to lose it all. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be doomed. What they needed was news. And so the Greek army, after defeating the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, decided we've got to send, and what Greek literature says is an evangelist. We need an evangelist to run from Marathon all the way to Athens. How many of you have ran in a marathon before? You're part of the history of the word gospel. So this runner, this evangelist, they called him in Greek literature, runs with a gospel, a gospel message all the way from Marathon to Athens. He runs into the city of Athens and he proclaims the gospel. We fought for you. We won. You're no longer slaves. You're free. Can you imagine how they felt hearing the gospel? Can you imagine the relief, the joy, the celebration that would have created inside of your heart to go from, from feeling like you're doomed and everything is going to be destroyed to knowing that you're saved? If what you hear about Jesus does not make you feel the way the Athenians felt that day, you didn't hear a gospel, you heard religion. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He came to bring a gospel. God has done something in history. And how you respond to that historical event matters. That's the story of Christmas. These are historical facts. Jesus became part of history. And there's implications to this. Think about this. How does this impact your life? Well, first, we've got to recognize the fact that we were 
so sinful, so evil, that it took God's own Son to break into history on Christmas to save us because we could not save ourselves. And at the very same time, we're so loved and cherished by God that He was willing to do it. That Jesus gave up the glory of heaven for the filth of earth all because of you. And when you respond to this historical reality, this truth of of what Jesus did on your behalf, what it does is it creates someone who is incredibly bold and incredibly humble at the same time. Humble because you know you're a sinner. You know what you deserve. Bold because you know you're loved and you know what God did on your behalf. Do you realize this is the exact opposite of every other religion in the world? Every religion at its best is good advice. Here's how you should live. Here's how you can improve your life. Here's how you can have inner peace. Here's what you need to do to be accepted by God. Every religion is good advice. What we have is the exact opposite of religion. It is a gospel, the beginning of his story. Which is ironic to me that every Christmas season, what do we all try to do during Christmas? We try to become better people, don't we? Every movie on TV, it's all about we should be more kind. We should be more generous. We should be more forgiving. And and Christmas is a time where we reflect on our behavior. We reflect on the people we are and what we should be. And I'm all for being a better person. I'm not against that. But that's not the point of Christmas. Christmas wasn't about us. It was about him. It was about what he did, not what we must do. It is a gospel, not a religion. The second thing that you see in the Christmas story is it's not fiction. This is not fantasy. It's not fairy tale. It's it's true, but it changes the way we read fiction. It changes the way we view fairy tales and fables and myths and, and stories. Let me, for point number two, let me get the best Frank Sinatra voice I can give you today. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you have a new heart. I don't know why they don't let me on the worship team. I I I think I can do it. Now, what in the world do I mean here? Well, if you look at myths, fairy tales, fables, they all had a moral to the story, didn't they? They were all about truth. They were teaching you a truth, but none of them were true. They were make-believe. They were fantasy. They were about truth, but they weren't true. This is not a fable. Christmas is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's actual history. It's a truth about something that actually happened. It's why it begins in Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus and not once upon a time. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, let me ask the question, why do we love fairy tales? Why do we love fantasy? Why did the Harry Potter franchise make so much money? Or Lord of the Rings or Disney keep recycling all of these old stories over and over and over and over that are not factually true? Why does it appeal to us? You see, when we watch these fairy tales, it it seems to fulfill a set of longings inside of the human heart that realistic fiction can never touch or satisfy. Think about this. Why do we love stories about communication with non-human beings, being able to talk to animals in a forest and they talk back to us? 
Why do we love stories about never growing old, escaping death? To know a love that we can never lose, to, to be able to fly one day, to step outside of time, good conquering over evil, love conquering all adversity. And yet the truth is, if we look at the world around us, they're so far from our reality of the world we live in. I mean, think about this, beauty and the beast tells us that there is a love that can break us out of the ugliness we created for ourselves. Sleeping Beauty tells us there's a noble prince that can come and break the spell of the, 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 the sleep and the darkness that we live in. Peter Pan tells us that we can stay young forever and fly. These stories move us. They stir the human heart. Death should not be the end. We should not have to lose the ones we love. Evil should never triumph. And Hollywood has made millions and millions of dollars recycling these stories because they appeal to the human heart. We want them to be true. In our heart, we believe they should be true. We love these stories as, as rational beings, but we just accept that they simply can't be true. But then, but then there's this, this Christmas story about somebody from a different world who breaks into our world. And he has miraculous powers. He can calm a storm. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. And then all of a sudden, his enemies turn on him and they, they put him to death. And it seems like all hope is gone. It's over. And then against all odds, he comes back to life. And he saves everyone. You see, this is the story that Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, used to bring C.S. Lewis to Christ. You see, Lewis and Tolkien were walking along the river one day. And Lewis was complaining about all of these myths, all of these fables. He said, they're all lies. They're lies. They, they, they just teach lies. And Tolkien said, not all of them are lies. You see, the Christmas story doesn't begin with once upon a time. It begins with the genealogy. And it was the thought that C.S. Lewis couldn't shake that eventually brought him to Christ. You see, Jesus is the fairy tale that's too good to be true, but it becomes reality. It breaks into our world on Christmas. Because of Jesus, fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you. You see, you have a knight that slays the dragon. Because of Jesus, we will never die. Yes, we'll trade these bodies in one day for newer bodies, but we'll trade these in for bodies that never grow old that never die, will speak to supernatural beings, will fly one day when Jesus returns. He's defeated this evil sorcerer and broken the spell over our lives. You see, for a believer, the fairy tale is just a foreshadowing of our future. It, 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 it's a foreshadowing of the reality that we have in Christ. It changes. Jesus is the ultimate that changes all fiction. For a believer. Now, finally, what would Christmas be without Christmas trees? And I love, I love Christmas trees. My wife, every year, puts together the most beautiful Christmas tree in our home. You can see it right here. It's always, our home is always so festive. She's so talented at, at making these beautiful trees filled with ornaments, filled with life, filled with decorations. But there's another famous Christmas tree during the Christmas season that's not very pretty. It's actually an ugly tree. 
And this is point number three, the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Bring me out my Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Thank you, Asher. How many know that this is a far cry from the tree that my wife created in my house? This is famous for being ugly. Charlie Brown got the short end of the stick, and he took this ugly tree, and he showed it love. And what I want to do today is I want to show you the ugliest tree in human history. And just so that you have a reminder, let me ask, how many of you love to take Christmas cards and put them on the refrigerator? How many of you are refrigerator people? How many of you take the Christmas cards, put them up on the mantle, you kind of keep them on the desk, they, 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 they just bring you joy? I got a Christmas card for every single one of you to remember this third point, because this third point is so powerful that I know it can change your life. So I'm going to have the team to hand out these Christmas cards, and I, and, I, and I encourage you, put this somewhere that you will see it regularly to remind you of the third point of what we're about to get into, the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. All right, as they hand those out, let's dive into this point. When you look at this 17 verses, this passage, this genealogy that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, I want you to see with this third and final point that it is dripping, it is full of God's grace. You see, every, every word in the Bible is inspired by God, useful for teaching and instruction, and so is the genealogy. Inspired by God, full of God's grace, dripping with God's mercy. Now, to understand it, you have to understand how the ancient people would have read this. You see, in the first century, the, the, the ancient Jewish culture and the ancient society, a, a, a genealogy was a resume. That's all it was. It was your resume. It was your credentials. It established who you were to other people. Now, it's hard for us to understand because we live in an individualistic society, and our resume is all about us. Our resume is what we've accomplished, what schools we've attended, what we've done in our life. So our resume is a reflection simply of us and our own efforts. But in ancient times, it wasn't an individualistic society. It was a community-based society. So your resume was your family line. It was what your family accomplished, what your family did, who your family was. That gave you credentials. You see, King Herod, one of the most evil tyrants of the first century, a major character of the Christmas story. He was famous for doctoring his genealogy because there was a part of his life that he was ashamed of. You see, Herod was half Jew, half Edomite. He was Edomian. And so he would conveniently delete the Edomian part of his family tree in his genealogy because they embarrassed him. He felt like they didn't give him the royalty that he deserved. And so he would edit out different people from the genealogy to make himself look better. What's shocking about this story is what Matthew does. Matthew does something so radical. He takes this genealogy and he fills it with scandal and, and, and all sorts of ugliness and intrigue. And honestly, what Matthew is doing is he's painting the ugliest, most dysfunctional, broken family tree in the history of mankind. And out of this ugly, broken, dysfunctional family tree, we see God produce the royal bloodline of Jesus himself. First off, when you read this story, you've got five women mentioned in the genealogy. You don't mention women in the genealogy in the first century. Women couldn't even testify in court because their testimony was worthless because they were women. 
What I love about this is God takes the things that are despised, the thing that the world has no value or, or credibility in, and he always elevates it. In a world where women didn't have value, God elevates women. He dignifies women. He gives them a voice. He gives them value and puts them in the middle of this story. You see, if this was fake, if a man made this up, if Matthew was making this up, he would have never put women in the story. The reason women are in the story is because God wrote this. He used Matthew's hand, but God put this. And it wasn't just any women. You have Tamar. And it conveniently says Tamar had two kids, Perez and Zerah. Now, why does that mention two and just one, since only one was part of the genealogy? Because Matthew wants to remind you of the story. This was a product of incest. She was on a third marriage. She was married to Judah's son and then a second son. And then she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her to produce these children. God has an incestuous, scandalous story right in the midst of this genealogy. Then you have Rahab, who's a Canaanite and a prostitute. You don't take the leader of everything you're, you're doing and give them a family tree like this? It's too scandalous. Then he has Ruth, a Moabite. The Old Testament is clear. No Moabite will ever enter in the presence of God. And yet you see a Moabite, somebody of the wrong nationality in the family tree. Some of these are on second and third marriages. You want to know what God thinks about a second and third marriage? Now look, God hates divorce because divorce hurts people. God does not hate divorced people. Do you want to know what God thinks of a second and third marriage? He used a number of them to produce the very royal bloodline of Jesus. You're not second class under God's grace. Then it says here, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why doesn't he say Bathsheba? See, he's not spiting Bathsheba. He's shaming David. He's, anybody would want King David in their genealogy. He's royalty. But Matthew wants to remind the reader of the whole story. Who is Uriah? See, when David was running for his life, hiding in a cave, there was a group of men that came and surrounded him, special forces soldiers who vowed to protect David with their life, who laid down their sword at his feet and said, we will fight you with you. We will defend with you. We will give you our lives. And one of these men that gave his life to defend David was Uriah. And David raped Uriah's wife and then murdered Uriah to cover it up. And Matthew's reminding the reader, this is, this is the genealogy of Jesus. You see why a first century person would have read this genealogy and said, I've got to read the end of this story because how can God use a family like that? How can God do anything good out of so much brokenness, out of so much scandal, out of... What does this mean? What it means is every single one of us are saved by grace. You'll never be good enough to earn your way in. What this shows us is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you are in Jesus' family, he's the one that makes your life matter. You've got liars in this list. You've got cheaters. You've got adulterers. You've got prostitutes. You've got murderers. You have Canaanites, Moabites. Slaves, refugees, nobility, poor people, rich people, criminals. Think about this. We're reading their names thousands of years later. Some of these names 
were people who were born 4,000 years ago. And we're still reading their name today. And they live on forever. And they will live on far longer than us. These names will be talked about forever. Why? Not because of how much money they made. Not because of what job they had or what business they built or what they accomplished or what they did or didn't do or how great they were. We know their names today simply because they were connected to Jesus. The only reason they were connected to Jesus. Apart from Jesus, your name's going to perish. Your grandkids may remember your name. Your great-grandkids probably aren't. They're not going to talk about you all that much. Your name will perish apart from Jesus. But through Jesus, your name can live on forever. You can have a name that will be remembered forever through Jesus. So Jesus takes the most broken, dysfunctional family tree in history and brings honor to it. And that's why it says in Hebrews 2.11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Do you realize Jesus is not ashamed of you? Jesus is not ashamed of you. I know some of you are ashamed of yourself. I know some of you have done things that you regret. Some of you are here today and you feel like there's things in your past that God can never forgive. I want you to know Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you a brother, a sister, to make you part of his family. Is there anything in life, any accomplishment, any accolade, any title greater than that, worth more than this? I mean, think about this. Who cares what the peasants think about you if the king adores you? If the king is not ashamed of you, who cares what other people think? We live in a world where it's all about who you are. It's your resume. It's what you know, who you know, what you've done, how much money you're worth. Not in here, not in the church. You see, in this room, everyone's equal. doesn't matter. Rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, doesn't matter. Every single person sitting here today, you find your worth in Jesus alone, not in you, not in your efforts, not in your history or past, but in his history. Grace smashes what the world finds value in. It's not where we come from, it's where we're going. The gospel isn't the good people in and the bad people are out, no. The gospel is everyone's in because of the grace of Jesus alone. So let me tell you, today, your family tree, as broken, dysfunctional, and ugly as it is, does not disqualify you. It doesn't disqualify you. Your mistakes, your past, doesn't disqualify you. God can redeem all the brokenness of your life. He's got the power to reclaim your family legacy. You may not have a great name to look to the past at, but you have a great name to create for the future in Jesus, for your children and your grandchildren. See, what I love about Jesus is in the Old Testament, if you were ceremonial clean to go into the, the temple to worship, and you touched something that was unclean like a dead animal, all of a sudden you became unclean and you were now disqualified. But in the New Testament, Jesus, who is clean, he could touch the unclean, the leper. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, what was in him would cleanse the leper. The leper would become whole and clean. You may have things in your life that you feel like are unclean. The story of Christmas is Jesus can touch your life and take everything that is unclean and make it clean. He can redeem all the brokenness of your past. He can turn your family tree around. 
C.S. Lewis about Christmas said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. That's the story of Christmas.